my name is Josh Freeman, and I am a labor historian. I recently retired from the City University of New York, where I taught at Queens College and at the Graduate Center. And I've studied over the years the history of workers and work and workers' organizations, uh, primarily here in the United States, but some internationally as well. Cool. Awesome. Um, yeah, that's great. So, yeah, I guess this is kind of broad, but I guess, like, for a first question, can you kind of do a, like, with whatever granularity, like, you think makes sense, a, like, rough, <laughs> this is really broad, but history of unions um, kind of in the U.S. over maybe, like, how did the first unions begin, and how is the how were the first unions tied to the rise of, say, um, you know, technology in the context of textiles or something right. like that? Well, this is a very long history, and, you know, there's a lot to it, so, you know, um, let me give a very skeletal little overview, and then, you know, jump in, and, and, and I, I, I try to elaborate on anything that interests you. I mean, first of all, the history of what today we would call unions or labor unions is as old as the United States itself. I mean, kind of literally, the f look like the things we call unions emerged in the era of the American Revolution, and it's kind of immediate aftermath. And these were organizations, societies, guilds, brotherhoods of uh, primarily skilled workers. And, and, and it's still in a world which has artisanal production at its sort of core and the old system of sort of apprentices and journeymen and, and master craftsmen, master artisan, a world in which wage work is a minor part of economic activity. And I think you, you have to sort of keep that in mind, you know. So, you know, most people are self-employed, they're slaves, they're apprentices, uh, they're indentured servants, they're, you know, prisoner labor. You know, there's a million categories of labor. And wage work is quite unusual. And one place you see it is among what were called journeymen artisans. And these were workers in trades like printing or shoemaking, who completed an apprenticeship, which was quite a formalized process of learning the trade, and uh, during which time they were not paid. They were kept in room and board and education by their master, and that was the phrase. Uh, and now they've completed that, and, and, and they are um, working for wages for a master artisan, as kind of like a wage worker today, in anticipation and the hope that they would become a master artisan themselves, who'd be a self-employed worker who might employ some artisans and journeymen. And, and there was a kind of initial conception that they all had a shared interest. You know, these apprentices, journeymen, masters, they were all at different stages of a kind of life process, right? But by the time you get to the American Revolution with the beginning of the spread of market relations, there's a growing sense those interests are diverging. And this is really where the first unions come out of, it's by the effort by journeymen to uh, protect or improve their conditions by banding together. And uh, a lot of this was, by the way, for educational and social purposes, but also to refuse to work at uh, what they called prices. You know, it's interesting. The language is different. We would call it wages, but they thought it was prices, the units of their labor they were selling, right? You know, prices below a fixed level, uh, What's generally considered the first strike in the United States took place 
in the 1780s in Philadelphia by printers. Uh, when the master printers tried to lower the, the wages, they, they simply said, we're not going to work for anyone who pays less than this and this amount. And, um, you know, and this was characteristic of the very, very earliest kinds of union activity. Uh, you know, given the context in which we're having this discussion, I would also point out these were very um, forward-looking workers. You know, they were quite skilled. And in fact, this particular group, you know, they're kind of the guy they really looked up to and was around them was Benjamin Franklin, who, of course, starts out as a printer and is, you know, uh, talk about a kind of technophile, you know, the first American technophile, you know, is Benjamin Franklin, who's quite sympathetic to uh, this effort by these sort of journeyman printers. I mean, he's long stopping a printer himself and he's in his 80s, but, you know, uh, he's open to the idea, you know, that, that, that they should bond together. So, that's the first unions, you know, and through the 1820s, that's pretty much what you see. Um, they're very small, they're short-lived, they're marginal. Um, as, as wage labor becomes more prevalent, other types of workers begin to get involved, including less skilled workers. Um, and then eventually in the 1830s, uh, as factories begin to, what we would call factory, begin to get common, you begin to see the first kinds of examples of factory workers getting involved. But, you know, all this is still very small scale, very unstable. And it's really only uh, after the Civil War, you know, with the spread of much larger scale productive facilities and, and, and other enterprises, the uh, beginning of the National Railway Network in particular, that you see uh, both companies and unions and labor clashes on a much, much larger scale. And so, you know, by the 1880s, uh, there were very large uh, conflicts between employers and workers organizing to unions. And, you know, there's a series of different organizations. Uh, the most important in the late 19th century was the Knights of Labor, which was a very all-encompassing organization. It, it, basically, any kind of worker, and even small employers could join, uh, that envisioned the replacement of the wage system with a more cooperative type of society. But in the short term, they also were a vehicle for workers to, you know, try to improve wages and conditions, uh, including through strikes. Um, and so simultaneously, this is the moment when the AFL begins uh, in 1886, uh, which we still have in a somewhat different version today. So, so you know, this is going back, you know, a century and a half even, uh, to, uh, uh, and, and these are large groups. And, 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 um, uh, Again, yeah, please interrupt. I have one really quick question about the printers in particular. Yeah. Was there, because when you, when you use the word apprenticeship, like oh. you said there was an apprenticeship element to it. Yeah. I think that is like not an especially liquid, um, meaning kind of like free flowing labor market, right? Like I think of that as being one person tied to one kind of, per, uh, I guess one younger person, someone earlier in their life who's being trained by someone with more yes. experience. But I'm curious, like, what was that the relationship for the first unions? Or was it, um, was, were, were people like freely moving around and earning yeah. wages or what then they would have called, I guess, prices. You're selling yeah. their work um, to a variety of different. Yeah. So, so it's like a three tier system. The apprentice is unfree labor. It's legally bound labor. 
a, 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 a parent or a guardian of a child, and these, I'm talking children, not like young adults, children, would sign a contract with a master artisan, typically there for seven years. And that uh, child owed their labor for those seven years to his employer, in return for which the employer was supposed to, you know, feed him, house him, uh, supervise his religious piety, and teach him the secrets of the trade. You know, it sounds like a PhD. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah, it's, it's kind of like that. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Um, uh, and, and by the way, this is legally enforceable. So uh, if you abandon your apprenticeship, you could be arrested as, you know, and brought back forcibly, just like a runaway slave or a runaway indentured servant. Um, the journeymen did have mobility. And in fact, the great tradition in Europe among these workers was, and it's interesting, it was that you wandered around. There was a, a wander yard, a wandering year among in, in Central Europe. And the idea, and this continued in America all throughout the 19th century, was, you know, to really become a master, you had to expose yourself to lots of work environments to see how lots of different people did this task, you know, whether it was uh, printing or later on being a machinist or, or, you know, these are complicated technical jobs and, and, and they're problem-solving jobs. You know, you're presented, how do you make this? How do you make that? You know, what, what kind of materials do you use? So, you, so in fact, um, mobility was a kind of, cultural sensibility, but it was also a way of perfecting your skills, you know, exposing yourself to a variety of, of, of both sort of teachers in a way or models, watching how different businesses work. And the idea is eventually you accumulate enough skill and also some capital that you can then become self-employed yourself and have apprentices, hire journeymen, and so forth. You know, the whole system by the early 19th century is kind of breaking down because a lot of these masters now you know, they're hiring lots of journeymen who are not necessarily so well-trained. They're dividing up the jobs, you know, they're moving towards a greater division of labor. But that was the theory behind it, you know. Yeah. I, I mean, I, you, I, these, first, these first unions were just for that middle level, the journeymen. Their unions were journeymen. Got it. Yeah, I have one other kind of just, I think this is uh, relevant context, but like, were, how did capital accumulation or even wage labor work in a context where there wasn't, like, where currency was much more fluid, right? So I would think yeah. an impediment to having wage, like, any notion of wage labor would be that I think it was kind of uncommon to compensate people in cash for work in general, right? Like, there, that's my understanding, at least. Like, you might use banknotes or something or an individual state's currency to buy, like, food, but... yeah. Yeah, no, this is, liquidity was a big issue. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, there is the idea of money and currency. I mean, there's probably a lot more bartering than we have today. But um, whether the money is good depends upon, you know, who's backing it. And, and, and a lot of it is issued by different uh, – uh, this is going to sound like a non sequitur, but a, a couple of years ago I was reading the letters between Mozart and his father uh, when he was traveling around Europe in a concert – pianist, you know, which uh, he was a kind of uh, wunderkind, you know, uh, boy prodigy. And he'd go, Half these letters are about exchange rates, currencies, you know, you know, the father saying, don't take dollars, you know, dollars are no good, you can't exchange them, take Florence instead. You know. so, so this was a real issue. 
but, you know, on the other hand, this was relatively modest amounts. No single employer is going to have more than a few people working for them. It's really only with the factory and the, the large-scale railroad that you have things that we take for granted now, hundreds or thousands of people working for the same enterprise. And that's a real problem. Uh, for example, in 18th century England, how do you get cash to pay a thousand workers, you know, and, and there were real problems with that. Uh, and of course, a lot of employers in the United States, as well as Europe, um, issued what they called script, you know, uh, things like mine companies and some factories. And, and these employers had their own stores. So they made money on both ends of it. They would pay their workers in script and the script could only be used at the company store. Uh, and that was an opportunity to inflate prices, sell substandard goods, and so forth. Uh, workers hated this system, but it continued, you know, in various industries, uh, you know, well uh, through, through the whole 19th century. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, okay, yeah, so I think you were, you were describing, like, the formation of the AFL, I think. Yeah, so the AFL is, is primarily a federation of these individual craft unions, uh, Brewers, this, this what, what does the AFL? AFL is American Federation of Labor. Is that Labor. Right? It's a federation of other organizations. So you don't belong to the AFL. You belong to an organization that is affiliated or part of the AFL. And that was always the model. And the model was that these individual unions, be it the electricians or uh, the, 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 the garment workers or whoever they might be had autonomy. So it's a kind of decentralized system. Unlike, let's say, for example, some European countries like France, where you have the CGT, you know, which represents workers in all kinds of different industries. It's politically coherent and it cuts across industries. That's not been the primary model in the United States. Um, in the AFL case, these are primarily skilled worker unions that often exclude the unskilled. They are heavily, very heavily white male. In some cases, by regulation, they are just literally exclusionary organizations. In some cases, by practice or because of the nature of the segmentation of the labor market itself. Um, and this is not incidental because, you know, the strategy for improving conditions in these skilled worker situations was basically, you know, if you could get all the skilled workers, let's say iron puddlers to join your organization, you know, the employer is screwed because they don't know how to iron puddle. And even if they did, there's just a couple of them, right? So you want to uh, have a tremendous degree of solidarity and keep the numbers of people in the trade down, you know, so that the supply uh, demand ratio works in your favor. And so, so discrimination and exclusion both, you know, limit access to the trade and also, uh, you know, solidarity is often built on exclusion. You know, us guys, you know, uh, us Italian guys, us, us whatever guys, you know, um, whatever it might be. So that's kind of baked into the DNA. Now, there are a lot of exceptions even within the AFL. And there are a lot of uh, 
for example, radical unionists, about a third of the AFL unions were socialist led by the turn of the century. So, you know, it's not a simple picture, but, um, but that's pretty much the status till you get to the mid 20th century. And then you get efforts to confront what's now emerged as the, as the, uh, the, the, the high points of, of, of the economy, these new kind of global, well, not global, but these new national and sometimes international corporations uh, that emerge in the uh, new industries, you know, first railway, then steel, then, you know, uh, electrical equipment manufacturing. These are the household name companies, GE, Pennsylvania Railroad, U.S. Steel, GM, you know, um, DuPont, companies like that. And, and there's a growing recognition that you simply can't organize these companies on the basis of these craft unions. You know, first of all, there are huge numbers of semi-skilled and unskilled workers. They have national scope. They have multiple plants. So you organize the Cincinnati, you know, iron puddlers. That's not, you know, even if you got every single one, it ain't going to stop U.S. steel, you know. So you have the industrial union model begin to emerge first tentatively in the first decades of the 20th century, and then, you know, full-scale explosion during the Great Depression and the New Deal, where you have a new idea. You have one union covering everybody in a a given industry. You know, you walk into a GM plant, and everyone belongs to the UAW. And there are going to be skilled tool and die makers, and there are going to be people sweeping the floor, and there are going to be clerical workers. They all belong to the UAW. So it's a kind of different conception. And, and, and uh, although there's certainly a sense of solidarity among these workers, it's no longer the idea of um, a kind of occupational brotherhood where you are, your identity is as a, uh, a machinist. Now your identity is as a GM worker, you know, uh, no matter what you might do within it. And by the way, this is tied to the creation of internal promotion ladders in a lot of these companies, which then become kind of folded into uh, the union, industrial relations. Unions are regulating these. Now saying, look, you know, we want some fairness about who has access to these better jobs. You know? So just to say one more thing, and then you tell me where you want me to go. The very yeah, nature yeah. of this strategy has to be inclusive, Right. If 20% of the workers at Ford are African-American, you ain't going to be able to succeed at Ford if you only are organizing white people. You know? yeah. So out of ideological predilection, but probably more important, out of practical necessity, the industrial unions that emerged you know, in the 1930s, uh, which are the CIO unions, that was a split off from the AFL. It split off in 1935. It's called the Congress of Industrial Organizations. Twenty years later, they remerged, which is why we have today the AFL-CIO. The CIO unions were always uh, multiracial, you know, reflecting whatever the mix in the industry they were organizing, you know, uh, and generally much more committed to social equality. Uh, they weren't necessarily great on gender, but they were better than the AFL unions. Typically, uh, especially in places like electrical equipment manufacturing, for example, like GE and Western, there are a lot of women workers working in light production assembly, you know, 
So there's a different kind of political ideological cast to the CIO, and it's very closely linked to the New Deal and to the left. Got it. That makes sense. I'm, so I'm curious. One thing I want to um, kind of follow up on specifically is how did so like you're saying when you have these industrial unions that are very they're very different from the older I guess part like unions that were a part of the AFL of yeah. I guess skilled craftsmen um, yeah. or craftsmen yeah um, the, the the difference was you're essentially building solidarity among people who are at different wage rates right different yes. salary different levels of yes. prestige within the workplace. How do yes. they do that? So how do they build solidarity between people who, you know, yeah. probably are of a of generally very different social class, generally skilled and unskilled, right? Bringing them together. Yeah. I guess you're saying that there just was less solidarity. But no, 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 no. It's a great question. And people thought about it a lot at the time. Um, and I think it, it's a measure of the... Uh, well, let me give you just like two like overarching answers and then maybe I can even say, give some more specific things. You know, one is that the context in which these things emerge, you know, primarily is the New Deal. And there is some sense of being part of some social uprising, some kind of emergent, some new day occurring, you know. And it, 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 it can be very uh, sweeping people up and opening them up to things that in the past they may not have been so open to. So I think there's a kind of uh, zeitgeist that makes this more possible at that particular moment. Um, it's not always easy to do this. And there's a lot of strategizing among organizers. Who do you go after first? They often go after the skilled workers first because sometimes – they're seen as kind of natural leaders, rightly or wrongly. Also a sense that they're not going to join an unskilled organization, whereas it might be. But, you know, there's a lot of thinking about how to do this. Um, and it's not necessarily easy. Um, and, and by the way, the tensions never completely go away. Like to this day in the UAW, when GM signs a contract, the skilled workers have a kind of like special veto power. Uh, over the contract that the other workers don't have. But there's also an effort to try to uh, create more fairness and equity in those differences. One is that these companies deliberately create an incredible hodgepodge of wage rates. It like makes no sense. And, and so it divides the workforce. They're also not so good at managing things for a billion reasons. Unionization actually forces rationalization, you know, with clearer paths uh, through either seniority or other ways to move up. So it, it, it creates a bridge between the different groups. The other thing is in the early days, these unions tried to give the biggest gains to the most needy workers on the basis of a kind of culture of solidarity. And what that means is you can't just give flat percentage increases. Because let's say you have a 4% increase for everyone who works for Ford, right? You know, in dollar terms, the person who's got the most money is going to get the biggest increase, you know? So they often uh, either have a raised floor and minimum for everybody or very frequently for the whole contract. And this was in the 30s and going into the early 50s, very much the case. It was often just like a, a flat amount increase for every worker, one dime more per hour for everybody. You know, 
And that actually, you know, both compresses the wage scale and it's a kind of solidistic idea. So they try to do that. They also, you know, these unions, they try to make themselves actual social entities. You know, they have baseball leagues, they have dances, they have parades, they have picnics, they have newspapers, you know, all these activities to, 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 because it's not just skill level, of course, it's ethnic and sometimes racial, you know, uh, uh, boundaries have to be crossed as well. And that's a huge challenge, you know, and it takes a kind of creative social engineering for them to succeed. Sometimes they blow up over these issues, you know, they don't always work, but um, but uh, I think the success of the CIO is it's brilliant at exactly this issue. I mean, it's one piece to, uh, that they have to master. I, I'm curious because I think um, just a, a, I you know with everything you're saying, I'm trying to relate it to kind of present context and thinking about why I don't see um, unions in more contexts, like in in kind of software or tech companies, yeah. et cetera. And I'd be interested to hear you in a you know few minutes maybe talk about what changed in the latter half of the uh, 20th century or the maybe the last quarter of the 20th century with globalization, et cetera. But one thing that's coming to mind is like a tactic right now that happens in the case of maybe tech companies is that there are some workers who, while there's tremendous demand for them and they have maybe a huge amount of leverage against their employer because, you know, software engineers, they hire yeah. thousands of them, but they're trapped still. Um, is that there's a sense that the companies just pay individual employees so much that they have little incentive to complain or something. It's kind of yeah. the, that's, the, that's almost the gestalt of like what's going yeah. on there. Software engineers have this sense that they're getting an amazing deal and they're getting so much money that it, it kind of dissociates them from feeling solidarity with, they feel like a real kind of class division, I think, with, you know, service workers, maintenance workers, et cetera, inside of the same facilities. And I'm curious if there's a history to that as well. So, like, were there ever yeah. kind of individual employees that were presented as, like, too skilled that it made, you know, like, maybe even, like, managers. Like, right, was there ever an attempt to unionize managers <laughs> inside of these companies? Well, this is a very interesting question you bring up. Uh, there, uh, there are about five interesting questions that were, like, in, in what you just said. But let me start with the last one. Um yeah, there were not so much high-level managers, but frontline supervision, including foremen and low-level supervisors. Uh, and they were kind of in the middle. They were the face of management, but very often they were themselves promoted from the ranks. You know, they're constantly facing and sometimes identifying with workers. And during the World War II era, there's actually a big movement to organize foremen in the United States. And companies hated this. They were extremely threatened by this because this was, th these were the sergeants, these were the non-commissioned officers, right, you know, of the industrial army that they were leading. And um, in 1947, in the Taft-Hartley Act, which is a series of amendments to the basic federal labor law that had been passed in the New Deal, and they had facilitated the unionization. In the Taft-Hartley Act, it becomes illegal to organize foremen. And that's been the case ever since. Uh, so, uh, by the way, they also exempted uh, security guards. <laughs> they said security guards couldn't be in the same union. But foremen can't be in the union at all. 
Um, so, uh, the, you know, labor law has been used as a weapon to try to reduce the draw of middle strata to the labor movement. You know, the exception that's interesting, this we're going really deep in the weeds here, you know, is in the public sector, because the public sector is not covered by federal labor law. Government employees are, uh, on the state and local level are covered by state law. So some places like New York, where I live in New York City, actually, there are a lot of uh, supervisors who work for the New York City government who are union members, you know, and it does change the whole atmosphere in the workplace, you know. Um, now, there are skilled workers, high paid workers, even today, who belong to unions. For example, the engineers at Boeing are unionized. They're a different union than the production workers, but they've been unionized for a long time. And this goes, you know, quite skilled, high level people. Um, that's somewhat exceptional. But, you know, I don't know. I've never seen studies. People have probably done it. The profitability and the capital of modern tech companies is so unprecedented. The ability to buy, you know, pay a, 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 a level of critical workers. It's not like three or four superstars, but, you know, a whole category of workers. These unbelievable amounts of money. I, I, it's hard to think of a lot of precedence for that, you know. And so I think it, 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 in a way it's a, a somewhat new problem. Now, you know, there are analogies I can make. For example, when newspaper reporters first organized which was in the 1930s, it was like star columnists that were like the leaders of the union. You know, and like there was a guy named Hayward Groon. He was a sports writer and a columnist and – uh, it's hard to come up with the analogy is today, but like he was one of the most famous journalists in America and he was the first president of the union. And, you know, so it was like the union said like, you know, you know, we're not like catch up. We're like, you know, we represent the best, the essence of what this occupation is, you know, and, and a lot of these more skilled unions, I'm thinking, for example, of like the machinists and like, you know, a machinist in 1890 or 1910, was like a super technically advanced worker. You know, if you look at their union newspapers, they're full of technical articles. You know, this is the way you calculate the tolerance when you're working with this type of steel. You know, you know that sort of stuff. You know, so that they projected the union itself as representing, you know, the leading edge of, of not just working conditions, but of the profession itself, of people's self-image of their technical capacity and I think that's something that, you know, is uh, certainly relevant through today, you know, that kind of, uh, or even, um, again, you see this in some public sector unions and some healthcare unions, with the union sometimes partnering with employers, sometimes on their own, has big training operations. So that, you know, you're working as a, a nurse's assistant in New York City Hospital, and you can go to a community college and get training and become a sort of next rung and, you know, uh, with support from the union at night. And then the next thing is, you know, you go and you get your RN and you're a And, you know, that, that's life transforming, you know. And the union conceives of its responsibility as creating those ladders, you know, and saying like, oh, here are all these people that have all this potential because of where they were born and who they are and maybe their race and maybe their gender. They're not getting those opportunities. So we're going to make it happen. 
And they often do, you know, sometimes they do it with the employer in whose interest it may be because it's, it, you know, especially in something like nursing where there's a chronic shortage, you know, the employer benefits from partnering with the union. So I think there are various ways of thinking about what a union is that might not be the usual stereotype that might be more appropriate to the kinds of work situations you're thinking about. Got it. Um, Maggie, I'm curious. I want to give you a shot or like if there's anything you want to ask. Yeah, um, I was um, interested in learning more about like the uh, process for recruiting people to join a union and also like the actual creation of unions within a certain industry or a certain company. How has that changed in the past to how it is now? Yeah, well, you know, prior to the 1930s, you know, um, organizing a union was a bunch of people getting together and saying, we're a union, you know. And if they had some legitimation, it came from the AFL or some national union who sort of recognized, okay, you guys will be a chapter, you know, and we're going to give you, and the phrase they used was jurisdiction over this group of workers, which also basically said, no other, we're not going to let any other union that we have dealings with, you know, move into your turf. And by the way, there are endless wars about this, you know, uh, who has jurisdiction over what, right? But this is a period of time when there was no legal right that was clearly defined to belong to a union. In fact, through much of the 19th century, there were all kinds of legal restrictions on unions, you know, uh, on all kinds of legal theories. Um, In 1935, the federal government the first time says, you know, American workers have a right to decide for themselves whether they want to engage in collective action. And it's illegal for an employer to take a reprisal for a person uh, expressing that right. And if a majority of workers in a particular workplace say they want to belong to an organization, right, that employer has to recognize that organization. They are legally obliged to recognize that organization for, as a representative of all the people who work there, not just the 62% who said they wanted to be in that organization. So that's called exclusive representation. So now you have a kind of legal framework created by the government designed to promote unionism, not really simply a neutral mechanism. Uh, unionism is defined as a national good, collective activity. It's actually in the preamble of the law. It says all these reasons why this is a good thing. You know, um, So you become a process, and it still exists today. If you want to be a federally recognized union, you get a bunch of people in your workplace together. You basically sign a petition, and I think you have to get 35% of the people to sign it. And you go to the federal government, and you say, you know, we want to have a, 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 a union in our workplace. And the federal government says, okay, we're going to have an election to see if the majority of people want to do that. They have an election. The majority of people, if they say they want to have uh, a union, then the employer is forced to recognize. That's what we just saw. Got a lot of publicity in Bessemer with the Amazon warehouse. You know. What was once conceived to be a democratization of the workplace has kind of turned into its opposite. And how that's happened is a very long story. This system does not work for workers anymore. And these rights, which still exist on paper, are meaningless. It's like black people had the right to vote in 1939 in Alabama, according to the United States Constitution, but it was meaningless, you know. I mean, you couldn't, well, that's what these labor rights are like today. So 
there's a lot of debate in the labor movement. You know, do we even use what's called you know NLRB, National Labor Relations Board, processes, or do we operate outside of it? You know, it's not illegal to operate outside of it, but you don't have any of the protections it provides. So, for example, if you're in a federally recognized union situation and an employer uh, you know, fires you for being a union president, that's illegal after we hire you. you know? But if you're, you're operating without NLRB recognition, in theory you have the same rights. But in practice, it almost never happens. So there's a lot of discussion that saying they forget. In fact, even just in this case of Amazon, there's right now, it's really, this is getting in the weeds, it's not high-tech workers, this is warehouse workers. Uh, but for I guess you'd call it a tech company, you know, how do you organize it? So in, in, in Alabama, it was the retail uh, wholesale and department store workers unions, and they get a traditional National Labor Relations Board procedure. There's a particular warehouse, you know, they tried to sign up as many people as they were. They had an election and they lost, you know. The Teamsters have organized a, or have launched an organizing campaign aimed at uh, Amazon warehouse workers in other parts of the country. And they said, we're not even going to have elections. You know, this is like, doesn't work. It's never going to happen. We're just going to exert pressure on Amazon everywhere we can. You know, we're going to, you know, pick it down. We're going to get the, the state legislature to pass a higher minimum wage. We're going to fight their effort to acquire, you know, in fact, isn't there a fight right now about um, them buying MGM unions? Amazon's trying to buy the MGM live, you know, they, they want it so that there's lots of, old movies and TV shows they could show on Amazon Prime. So there's a huge value in the intellectual property of MGM. And uh, unions are intervening in the antitrust you know, procedures, you know, because they're looking for lever points on Amazon. And ultimately, you know, another lever point is if you could get it together, you could strike, you know. Um, you know, they can't throw you in jail for going on a strike, you know, even if you're not a recognized union, but, you don't, but they could fire you. You know, it, unlike with the recognized union. So the teams are saying that's what we, So, you know, there are multiple paths and what had been for many decades considered by everyone. They sort of, the, the way you do it, you know, more and more uh, union organizers are going, you know, it ain't working. Of course, there's a big, big struggle right now to change the federal law. So this is the so-called PRO Act, and I can't even tell you what the acronym stands for. It's the highest uh, labor political priority. Joe Biden claims he's for it. The Democrats all claim they're for it. Um, in my view, it ain't passing, but I could be wrong. I, you know, I don't think it's going to happen. Yeah. I've heard about the PRO Act, I, but I don't know what's in it. Well, the PRO Act is an effort to change the rules, all the million details about the process of recognizing unions and what rights people have. Um, you know, some of this is really arcane stuff, but, you know, a standard company practice is to basically kind of uh, break the law and um, know that by the time they get caught, uh, the union will be defeated and the penalties will be minor. So you fire the union activists. The penalty is um, that you eventually, ha if you lose, you have to rehire them and pay them back pay minus whatever money they might have made if they took a different job in the interim. Believe me, if yeah. you're Amazon, when you hire, fire Chris Smalls in Staten Island, you know, 
and now that's he was a warehouse worker, got a lot of publicity early in the pandemic when Amazon fired him because he was a loudmouth, you know, in Staten Island at their warehouse. If they get forced to rehire him and they have to pay him, you know, what, $80,000 in, in, in back wages, but they stopped at the bud organizing that warehouse, it's chum change, man. Like, that's good business practice, right? So Proact has different penalties. It has timetables. It has the ability to go into federal court more quickly. You know, it's, uh, they're also promoting the idea of, of, of what's called card check. How do you determine a majority of people want to belong to a union? You know, and the original federal law, by the way, did not say how you do that. And in some of the earliest campaigns, the federal government, the National Labor Relations Act, they would send people into a factory, workers in the factory, call up and, hey, we want to have a union. You know, they'll send some like 24-year-old kid, right, who they've hired to work for the National Labor Relations Board to go to the factory. The, fa- the guy walks around and talks to like a half dozen people. What do you think about union? Comes back says, yeah, they all have a union. Okay, they certify a union, you know. Um, uh, or they would have like what they call a card check, basically a petition. If the majority of people signed these papers says, I want to join a union, they said, okay, it's a union. Only slowly did the election become the norm. Now, we associate the United States elections with democracy. But the irony here is that elections tend to be anti-democratic in this situation because what happens the Amazon situation is the perfect example. Bessemer, right? You get all these people, hey, one join union, they sign a card. Then a campaign starts. The, the federal government says, okay, we have an election. This was a pretty quick one, but it might be three months or six months because the company is going to stall. The company is going to say, well, who's in the unit? Who should be allowed to vote? And, that, and, and you know, we don't want to have the people in this group because they're really confidential employees. They don't belong in that group. This can go off forever, right? They, then they can challenge the determination in court. Um, finally, you know, there's going to be an election. Then you can have what's called captive audience meetings. Tell me if I'm going on in more detail because, you know, this is endlessly can get very boring. But uh, uh, an employer, it's legal for an employer. Okay, so let's say you work for uh, – uh, so I, I know nothing about union cards, right? Like I've heard yeah. union cards. But I don't know yeah. what they mean. Yeah, well, so, you can sign a, a union, an authorization card saying, I want, I, I want to have a union election, right? And you don't even have to have a majority of those. You have to have, have like a, a large uh, minority, 35%. You go to the federal government and say, let's have an election. So they schedule an election, right? Now the company gets to work. And by the way, they don't do this on their own. There's an industry in the United States of law firms and consultants whose job it is to make sure the company wins that election, Okay. And the first thing they say is, you know, they have all kinds of propaganda, they do polling, they have everything. But, you know, the basic idea is you convince people that the unions are third party that's going to interfere with the good relations, meanwhile taking your dues to serve these outsiders someplace else, right? And you send this message to what's called captive uh, audience meetings. So you can say, you know, yeah, you you have have to go to this meeting, part of your job. Okay, everyone in Department X, 10 a.m. to, to 11.30 on Tuesday, show up in the conference room. And in the conference room is a slick slideshow and a consultant who are going to lecture you about why you should not belong to that union. You know, uh, And they're going to tell you all the reasons why it's terrible, and they're going to have questions and give you anti-union answers. The union has no capacity or right to do the same thing, right? They have no right to have a meeting 
on the property of the company, right? Uh, and you think about modern workplaces where people drive from all over the place or they're working remotely, you know. Um, so, uh, you know, you, you assault people with this propaganda and you scare people, you know. Now, a lot of this scaring is illegal. This is illegal. You know, if the union wins and wages get too high, we're going to have to move this place to someplace like Mexico because we're not going to be able to, you know, profitably sell our product. That is illegal. The threat to move a company if workers doesn't make a difference, you know, because, you know, eventually it'll get slapped on the wrist by somebody. But by then the idea is in workers' heads. And, and workers believe it. Because companies do this all the time, right? Unions win and they move to Mexico, you know, or uh, they close down the facility. You know, the only Walmart workers in the United States that ever unionized were a bunch of butchers in Walmart uh, place uh, who took big hunks of meat and cut them up. Walmart eliminated those kinds of butchers. They just sent to the individual stores pre-cut meat and fired all the unionized butchers. People know this, you know. So that, this whole election system, you know, uh, is is very uh, it's terrain that highly favors the company. So the PRO Act would reinstitute the idea of a simple card check. We have a card from 51 percent of the people or 50 percent plus one in a factory. That's it. No campaign, no nothing. You know, got it. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious, like which part of the law, like, like specifically the thing where they have to eat, where you have to attend this? Um, presentation given by the company about the yeah. why not to join the union like yeah. what law is is requiring that um i think it's in the taft hartley amendments the 1947 amendments to the national labor relations act but yeah. ba- you know basically what it's saying is look companies can do this all the time you know companies can say you know everyone down to the auditorium we're having a presentation on you know windows uh you know uh 12 you know our, our newest product and you know, if you say, I'm not interested in Windows 12, I don't think I'm going to go, your supervisor is going to say, shit, you're going to go. This is your job and you do what I tell you to do or else, you know, it's not your job anymore. Basically, what the law says is there's no difference between that and saying everyone down the auditorium will discuss with a union, you know. Um, uh, and, and so this is the basic law in the United States is still the National Labor Relations Act of 1935, but it's got all these amendments. But even equally important is the way the courts have interpreted the law over the years, which gives more and more free reign to uh, employers and constrains the uh, rights of, of unions. Or, you, know, can, you know, can a union, for example, let's say there's a, 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 a you work for Google, or you work for, for uh, Bloomberg. I don't know if you have been to the Bloomberg headquarters. I got this fabulous food area, like all these companies these days, you know, and everyone hangs out and you get free everything. And it, it's really very nice. You know, um, can the union hand out a leaflet in there, you know, in the middle of a, of a campaign when Bloomberg employees being dragged off to the conference room? For the, well, the answer is no, you know, so you're what you think maybe, Oh, I have a, you know, uh, first amendment, right? Well, the courts say you don't have a first amendment, right? In some employer's property to discuss a union, you know? So, um, you know, so then you stand outside the gate, you know, when people are driving by or outside the building when everyone's exhausted at the end of the day, scurrying off to try to get home. So there's a lot of, you know, things which at first glance uh, you might not think about, which make this not even handed. 
you know, look, these companies are incredibly powerful. In the case of these tech companies like Amazon, I mean, they're very innovative and inventive folks involved in managing these companies. They're good at this, and even if they're not good, you just pick up the phone book and you hire these law firms or these consulting firms that have been doing it for decades and have perfected it to a T, and you walk just on the edge of the law. And if you tip a little bit against the law, that's okay. You know, it's just the price of doing business. You know, so the PRO Act is designed to create a, you know, to use a horrible cliche, you know, the equal playing field, to reestablish what was once seen as an equal play, playing field. But I, 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 to be honest, uh, the labor movement has been trying to change these laws since the 1960s. And even when there have been Democratic presidents and large Democratic majorities in both houses of Congress, they never succeed. Because when push comes to shove, this is one of the core industries for American employers. And American employers, you know, including very, very liberal ones, have a huge amount of influence in Congress. And um, at the end of the day, it, it, so far, you know, it hasn't happened. You know, that doesn't mean it can't happen, but... So I, I think there's mixed feelings. A lot of people are putting a lot of hope in this, but I think there's also a lot of other pro-union types who are going, forget it. You know, we just have to think, how do we deal with things in the current environment where we actually live in? You know? I, I'm, uh, I have two kind of questions that follow up on that. So I think now is a good time to ask them that are kind of tied to each other. So one is, can you describe broadly to kind of finish this historical narrative, what happened after 1960, right? Why do, why do unions seem yeah. weak today? Why is the framing from, say, a Bernie or yeah. Biden that we're yeah. kind of bringing them back or something? Are they people comment, there's this narrative often that if, if unions are going to be powerful, this is a resurgence, what happened to them? And right. I think so that's, you know, mostly focusing on that, but with a touch of also, if you could explain, it seems like globalization is relevant here. Um, right, as a kind of increased globalization, there was a lot of offshoring of jobs in the, the kind of last yeah. uh, two decades of the 1900s. Yeah. And the thing that you said about, you know, when you have these forced meetings with employers and employees, yeah. the thing that I always point to is, well, if we raise prices, you're going to lose more jobs to Mexico. It might be illegal to threaten that, but also it seems like in the 90s it probably was true, right, to at least yeah. some extent. Oh, and absolutely. Even with software companies, you can imagine that it would be true eventually. Yeah. So. You could address kind of that historical shift, yeah. the why the decline yeah. in power, and then the globalization element. Yeah. These are huge questions. <laughs> I could go on for hours. So let me start and not go on for hours. Let me just start by saying, you know, the main thing to look at to answer your first question is not changing public attitudes. Because there's a vast disconnect between public attitudes and what ends up institutionally. So like today, if you do polling, you know, and you ask people in the workplace, you know, like, if you could have a union, would you want to have it? You know, that number hovers around 50%. Sometimes it's a little above, sometimes it's a little low. But, you know, right now we have 11% of people born into unions. So, you know, you know, if, if simply, like, your wish became reality, like in a sci-fi movie, you know, we'd have a majority of workers in America. Um, so it, it, it's kind of institutional structures. I think if you look at the period starting at the end of World War II and going up to now, you know, I would say the big change happened in the failure of the union movement to follow the, the shifts in the economy of several different kinds of shifts. You know, the, the, the bastions, the strong points 
of unionism turned out to be the slowing, slower growing and ultimately declining types of industries and parts of the country. And what became the fastest growing industries and parts of the countries were things that were never very unionized. You know, so regionally, you know, the union movement was always somewhat centered in the Northeast, the Midwest and the West Coast, you know. And the West Coast is a little bit of an exception here. But if you think about the great shift of resources and even population, where's the economic center of gravity move? You know, it's moved out of Michigan and Ohio to, you know, Atlanta and Houston, you know, and the union movement didn't follow that. You know, and why? That's a whole other interesting discussion. Then in terms of sectors, you know, where was the union movement strong? construction, transportation, manufacturing, you know. Um, now, some of those things are still obviously important, but uh, manufacturing in particular, as a percentage of the workforce, declined and declined quite significantly, you know, over the last half century. I mean, really significantly. And in growing areas, white-collar uh, technical jobs of various kinds and service occupations, these were... Uh, uh, very thinly unionized sectors. And as they grow, they didn't become more unionized, with a few exceptions. I mean, the exceptions might be teachers, right? That, you know, and, and, and in some parts of the country, healthcare workers, you know. So that the, the growth of the economy, both in terms of what parts of the country, what industries are growing, unions, you know, were failing to, to move into them. And therefore, you know, unions like the UAW used to be 1.5 million members. Now, I don't know, it's a couple hundred thousand, you know, steel workers, you know, uh, two million members at one point, I think, or 1.5, you know, a couple hundred thousand now. Um, and, and those unions are maintaining themselves by organizing graduate students, you know, and clerical workers. The UAW is organizing museum curators, you know, I mean, because their core industries have so shrunk. So now, I'm, in a way, I'm simply evading the question, well, why didn't the unions follow into those areas? And, and you know, some of it had to do with, you know, structural issues. I think in the case of the South, extremely conservative place, uh, the corrosive effect of racial uh, uh, domination, division, you know, cultural factors, you know, made it very, very difficult. White-collar sector was always harder for unions than blue-collar sector, you know. Um, but some of it, frankly, was the lack of uh, initiative, you know, the lack of uh, creativity by the union movement itself, it, it, it kind of settled into a kind of uh, complacency, you know. And I think this was accentuated in the 1960s when a new left emerged, you know, around the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement that, uh, that became estranged from the labor movement and the other way around, you know. I mean, the leadership of the AFL-CIO, uh, not every union, but the, the top leadership in most unions, they were gung-ho for the Vietnam War, you know. And young left-wing kids coming out of college, you know, taking jobs as coders, like, why would I want to join that? You know, I mean, and on issues of race and gender, as the composition of the workforce was changing, uh, the labor movement was lagging, you know, uh, particularly on the upper levels, you know, and He's like all white guys having their annual convention around the swimming pool in, in, in you know, Bal Harbor, Florida. Like, you know, 
what what dynamic young person you know in a, in a you know growing industry is going to look to that and think that's you know that's that's where I want to be at you know so I so I, I think the union movement itself certainly deserves some blame now. You added another layer with your second half of your question. Globalization obviously greatly accentuated. Why are these industries shrinking? In a lot of cases, it's because these jobs are going to places uh, which are lower labor or perhaps have better designers and managers. So, you know, you think of the auto industry. You know, I mean, there are no foreign cars in the United States, except for a few exotic sports cars, you know, in any significant numbers till, you know, basically the beginning of the 1970s. Uh, but you begin to have the VW, you know, Beetle is the first mass foreign car. And by the 1970s, you know, I mean, a lot of uh, foreign-made cars, particularly when oil prices go up, they're cheaper, they're better designed, you know, so forth. And then uh, labor costs, you know, differentials. And when you get to things like electronics, you know, the labor cost differentials or, or garment, because these are labor-intensive industries. I mean, not designing these things, but actually making them. You know, the labor costs are quite high and um, heck, you can just do it a lot cheaper, you know, whether it's Haiti or, 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 or uh, Mexico or, of course, ultimately China became the, the place for so many of these. So, so first of all, it meant the loss of union jobs. Second of all, it meant the downward pressure on jobs that remain. And third of all, it meant the plausible threat to workers who were trying to uh, advance their own interests through collective activity that, okay, you keep doing that and, hey, you know, we'll go to one of those places that has cheap labor and, by the way, authoritarian governments, you know, which, um, you know, limit the ability of workers uh, to behave the way you guys will, are, are acting right here now. So I think that they all play together. Uh, I, I've given a very simplistic story. There are counter-tendencies during all this. Other things are happening. The biggest counter tendency to the organization of public employees who, you know, back in the 30s and 40s and 50s, very few of them belonged to unions. Now it's a much stronger base for unions. So that's the exception to prove the rule. That's the one area where unions did expand. And interestingly enough, you know, cuts across all different kinds of occupations, you know, public employees. Like here in New York, for example, architects and engineers who work for the city of New York, they're all unionized just as sanitation workers are you know, in hospital work or, and, and so forth. Got it. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. Maggie, you want to, do you have anything you want to ask? Yes. Um, so moving into like the influence of unions, I was wondering more about like the overarching effects of unions, like how they shaped the cities that um, the workers were in, their families, um, just like yeah. the overall beyond just like the company or the industry. Yeah. Itself. Yeah. Uh, the, the first book I wrote was about the transport workers union, the guys who represent the bus and subway workers in New York. And I stole a, a, a famous line from Joel's, uh, from James Joyce, who's someplace in Ulysses, or maybe it's in the Dubliners. I can't remember. He talks about revolution on the installment plan. And I think that's the way to think about this. It's revolution on the installment plan, you know, and it takes, I think two sides one is the contractual game, right? What are you getting from your own individual employer? And if you look at a steel worker, you know, in 1940 versus 1970, that is a revolution in their lives. You know, half of all steel workers in 1940, I think it's half of them, 
don't quote me, but something like that, don't have indoor toilets. You know, they have no savings. They're living in squalid housing. You know, their their jobs are unbelievably dangerous, you know, uh, and, and, and the, they're maimed, you know, with no compensation. You know, after the war, you not only begin to get every year or two years or three years when there's a new union contract, a pay increase, but now you begin to get things like health insurance, you know, um, you begin to get things like retirement funds. You begin to get um, uh, longer paid vacations, you know. Uh, so what does it mean? By the time you get to 1965, you know, steelworkers in, in Youngstown, Ohio, or, or Johnstown, Pennsylvania, you know, they own their own home, you know. They might have a hunting shack someplace, right, you know. Their kids are going to college, you know. Uh, when they have their first heart attack, the family finances don't totally collapse them into destitute. They go into the hospital, you know, with the union paid insurance, you know, and when they're worn out by their job of lifelong physical labor and hot, sweaty strength, they retire to Florida at the age 65. It's a revolution in people's lives, you know, literally a revolution in people's lives. Um, on top of that, in some places, you know, particularly centers of real union strength, you know, uh, the Pittsburghs or the New Yorks or the Milwaukee's, the whole social environment around them is, is impacted by their uh, unions as political actors, you know, uh, supporting candidates or even running candidates who support liberal programs. You know, and that might be everything from Medicare, which the votes to get Medicare through uh, very much came from the union movement uh, and its pressure in Congress to, to local things, you know, um, uh, 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 local housing programs, uh, cultural programs aimed at working people, keeping the fare on mass transit low, um, setting up uh, systems of community, municipal community colleges, you know, uh, and so forth and so on. And in some places, and you have to be very careful because I don't want to overstate this, fighting discrimination. I mean, the, the record here by unions is very mixed. And you have some unions that defend white uh, privileges, you know. But in some parts of the country, you know, you have a fair amount of union support for, um, particularly in the height of the civil rights movement in the 1960s, for uh, eliminating formal and even some informal discrimination against non-whites. Uh, slower on the gender front, but eventually that comes around too. Uh, and in fact, even uh, these days on uh, issues like LBGTQ and stuff like that, you know. Um, so uh, as civil or civic organizations, I guess you could, is another face of unions. Some unions embrace that very strongly. Others, you know, really want to focus on on the workplace. But put those two things together, you know, uh, the way the contractual relationship between the employee and his own particular employer and then the broader social environment in which they live, you know, are changed, you know, the 20, 30 years after World War II, are, you know, for private sector workers are completely transformative. And I would say for public employees, the key era is later. It's really the, like, the 70s to the 90s, you know, where, you know, again, people's lives are, are, are transformed. I can give you a million examples. You know, New York City hospital workers, I'm talking about the low-end hospital workers, uh, 
through the 1950s was so poorly paid that they were eligible for welfare. A lot of them were collecting welfare while they had full-time jobs, you know. I mean, today, those are not, you know, you're not getting rich doing that. But, you know, you live a decent life. You, 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 you probably could buy an apartment or a home, you know. Um, you're not living on the edge. Every moment is not the threat of disaster, you know. A friend of mine who wrote a great book that sort of touched on this, he said, you know, it's discretion. Working people had no discretionary income till you know, the 50s and 60s. You know, they had none. You know, every penny went to these basic, you know, necessities. And if your flow of income was interrupted, it's a total disaster. You know, I mean, literally, you know. By the 60s, 70s, and 80s, people have some discretion. You know, they can save up and buy, you know, the boat to take out to the lake, you know, the, the little motorboat. You know, I mean, it, it may not be much, but if you like motorboats and you never can afford one, it's, it, 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 it's a big change. So I'm going on and on waxing romantically here, but there's a, there's a lot of truth. It really can. Let me just say one other final piece of this, because this may be more relevant in some ways to the high-tech, high-paid workers. It also changes work relations on the job. You know, it introduces a, a, a level of both fairness and a kind of uh, set of procedures that a, a, a employee can pursue if they believe that they are being treated unfairly. You know, I mean, it was always the case in American industry through the mid 20th century that foremen and supervisors, you know, I mean, now here I'm thinking like factory situation, you slip the foreman, you know, uh, a couple, you know, a case of scotch and you're going to get a better job assignment, you know, or your wife's cousin, you know, you know, someone in the front office, da, da, da. you know, unions can eliminate. And of course, that's often linked to discrimination, sexual harassment, you know, uh, sexual favors. I mean, our, our, our governor, my governor is about to resign. You know, this is not old hat. This still goes on all the time. Um, unionism can intervene in that, you know, by having, you know, creating a rule-based system, you know, by having through grievances and arbitrations, ways of addressing these kinds of problems, by building some countervailing uh, power on the, on the work floor, and in the better employment situations, just fostering dialogue, you know, promoting the idea that workers have good ideas about how to reorganize the shop about uh, the work process, the workflow, you know, ways to make sure that you are drawing on the richness of ideas and thoughts and experience that you're not just from little pool of people at the top of the hierarchy, you know, and, and you know, different unions have different attitudes about all these different kinds of things, but, you know, or, or here's another example, you know, uh, there was a huge issue out in California, it's been an issue in other parts of the country, the nurses through their union, demanded and eventually won uh, staffing levels. They actually did through the law. They couldn't get the employers to agree. So they got the California state legislature to pass a law that sets staffing levels, you know, or, or has a procedure for setting staffing levels. So, you know, it says, you know, for, in, in ICU, you have to have one nurse for every three patients. Or, you know, in this, you have to have that. And, you know, the idea is both to protect the worker from overload, but you know, presumably it's a win-win for the patients, you know, because you're also uh, trying to ensure that uh, the consumer of the product, in this case healthcare, you know, is, is being well-treated. So so I think that's another dimension of what unions contributed and can contribute, you know. And again, 
the zillion unions in this country, and some of them think some of this is important, and others think some of these things aren't important. So there's no simple pattern. But best case, you have all these different layers of what you're accomplishing, and it can make quite a difference. I have more questions if you, unless you have any. Um, I was, I was wondering if we could uh, talk about the pandemic for a second, um, and talk about what? I'm sorry, I didn't catch it. The pandemic. Oh, um, the pandemic. Okay. Yes, we we both read a piece that you wrote uh, about the influenza, like the flu pandemic. Yeah. And the. Uh, um, the the influences of that and like the connections to yeah. um, the union and uh, yeah. labor and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that and um, relate it to the current situation of like the mechanic now and how it has affected um, unions now and also like um, perhaps also just like in like separately from that, but also just like the remote work and how um, yeah. potentially that may affect how unions organize. Yeah, this is a fascinating question. And I don't think anyone's a great expert on either of these. Um, you know, there are certain special historical circumstances when workers gain power, when for whatever reason they become critically socially important. And, you know, the most, uh, prominent examples of this is war, you know, and even not the soldiers, but the defense workers or the transportation workers or the people loading the ships with ammunition are critical to the national endeavor. And they potentially can get a lot of uh, improvements in their circumstances, you know, uh, and, and there's, there's a lot of that in the United States during World War I and World War Two, And, you know, a pandemic in a way is another variant on that kind of idea uh, the influenza epidemic was really strange because for a variety of reasons, uh, people really, by all standards, didn't really acknowledge at the time how devastating it was, you know. Uh, and um, it, 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 it didn't bring things to a halt, particularly the way it has, you know, this pandemic did. Um, and it happened to coincide with a great wave of worker militancy, but whether it was causal, I don't think that we really understand. Yeah. In this pandemic, you know, what struck me was in the first months, let's say February to June, um, there was this sudden social visibility of people who we treated, middle class people treated as invisible. Delivery people, you know, clerks, truck drivers, so forth, you know. And suddenly, we People start saying, oh, yeah, I, I really need those people. I really depend upon them. And sometimes they were going like, oh, it's so great that those people are keeping us going. I, I, I can't go to the store. You know, my, my daughter's got, you know, cystic fibrosis. But, you know, I could, buy, you know, go on my computer and this food shows up. And isn't it great those people doing it? And, and of course, also the companies needed those people, especially the explosive growth of, of uh, online retailing, you know. Uh, so they had some, you know, supply-demand leverage. So we saw, you know, um, unions and sometimes workers even without unions being able to win some concessions, you know, on some pretty basic stuff, you know, personal protective equipment, you know. And then you saw a bunch of companies like Amazon and a lot of others 
issuing what was sometimes called, you know, uh, hazard pay or hero's pay, you know. And very commonly in, in some of the delivery and retail industries, they raise people's wages about $2 an hour. And, you know, if you're making 12 or $13 an hour, that's not trivial, you know. Um, what struck me was that although workers and unions were pretty good at getting those kinds of things, I think it very rarely led to long-term structural change. And what was really kind of amazing to me, I guess everyone noticed it, but somehow another, no one seems to think it was as horrific as I think it was. You know, come June and July, all these companies, I mean, the, the pandemic didn't go away. We were in a slightly better moment of it for a while, you know, because of the pandemic. They go, okay, we're done. You know, no more heroes pay, no more hazards pay, you know, and, um, they revoked the pay increases, you know. Now, some companies continued to offer bonuses and some companies did improve pay. But, you know, lots of companies said, oh, yeah, we're done with that hero business, you know. And that's a year ago already, you know. And there was no moral outrage in the United States about this. So, you know, it's a little hard to say what the long-term effect is. I think we have a category in our social landscape you know, a social reckoning called the essential worker that we didn't really have a year and a half ago, you know, and I think that's potentially a very important and powerful thing, you know, and it's, it's the healthcare worker, but it's the grocery worker and the delivery worker and, you know, uh, the utility repair crew, it could be a lot of people. And, and I think it's an opportunity, you know, uh, to, to, for, unions and other institutions to give these folks their due, you know, what they really, in my view, deserve. But will, I was say, is there a book with that title yet? Because if not, there will be, right? The Essential Worker, like a call for a yeah. new labor movement. Yeah, yeah. no, uh, I don't know. We should hurry up and write it after the phone call. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I don't know, you know. Um, then, of course, you know, there's the issue of the remote worker. And, and that's, it's just hard to say, you know, I mean, the orthodox theory of unions says, you know, unions are easiest to organize and tightest and, and strongest when you have these close-knit communities. Like in the old longshore days, like the longshoremen, they only worked on the, on the ship together. They all lived in the same neighborhood near the docks. They all went to the same church. They all went to the same bar. You know, their kids married each other. You know, they all went to, 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 to elementary school together. So there's a zillion connections and this tremendous organic strength, you know. And, you know, when people are spread all over the place where they're working remotely, you know, can you reproduce that, you know? And, yeah, you know, I don't think the verdict is completely in yet, but I think, it may turn out that yeah, you know, it's not the same, but there are a lot of pluses that you didn't have with the other system that you do have with remote interconnections. You know, I, I, I felt this even just teaching. You know, there are people, I, there are students who I knew I had in classrooms who never said a word. And when we switched to remote, you know, a year ago, suddenly they, they, they started talking. They were saying all these things, you know, they just somehow felt more comfortable in this medium, you know? And um, so I think in terms of organizing, you know, remote allows people to uh, transcend geographical separation. 
in some cases, it, 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 it's a more comfortable environment for some people than being in the same room. So, you know, I, I, I don't think we really know yet. So I'm, I'm just really hesitant to bottom line it and say, oh, yeah, it's a net plus or yet minus, net minus. I'm curious also, when I think about, when I compare the um, past labor movements that you're describing to the situation today in contemporary tech workplaces, it seems like there's um, much more, this might be more on the startup side, but there's been a big successful drive, I think specifically with Silicon Valley companies, for employees to like really identify with their employer. Yeah. And I get the sense, so my, my grand, I think this is right, my grandfather was in, uh, worked for IBM for years and yeah. he was in a yeah. union at IBM for decades, yeah. right? He like worked his entire career for IBM. And I get the sense that he identified a lot with IBM yeah. It's yeah. sort of from the union involvement as well. And it's almost like if you think of today, maybe a, a strike, right, or something, or like even Salesforce or something yeah. like that. They yeah. these massive companies, some of the biggest companies yeah. in like the S&P 500. And yeah. it, it seems employees really identify with them, but it's without the context of unions yeah. or something like that. I don't yeah. know if that's because they offer more services in the workplace anyway and more social kind of involvement with if they like supplanted that function of unions, but I'm curious what you think of that. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a very interesting question. I, I, I don't know. It's hard to, to, to come up with some summary statements. I think in the 19th century, in the 18th century, people identified with their trade, not with their employer. I'm a machinist. I'm a this, you know, I think in the 20th century, you, you saw more of what you were describing. Um, some of it was actively promoted by companies. And a lot of the stuff that we think of as new with like Silicon Valley and tech companies, you know, stock offerings to regular employees, you know, all kinds of perks. You know, a lot of companies, particularly in the 1920s, when unions were growing stronger, deliberately developed whole programs of that as an anti-union effort, you know, to kind of uh, both provide perks, but also to build identification with the company, you know. And also, you know, I think people, I don't know, I'm like this. I think a lot of people are like this. It's kind of neat to be part of the newest big thing, you know. And if the newest big thing is Ford or IBM or Amazon or Google, it's kind of neat to be part of that. You know, like you're aware it's happening. You're aware, like, the future is being created. And people like that, you know. And I think they're willing to overlook certain things because that's just a really neat experience and you and you genuinely lose something when you walk away from that you know so i think some of that is 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 what you're talking about going on i think a lot of companies have been pretty shrewd and deliberately promoting it again it's not a new story i mean most ibm workers were actually not unionized and it was primarily not union. and there were a bunch of companies that sort of pioneered um Big companies that that, that 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 in an era when most of these giant U.S. companies like GM and U.S. Steel were being unionized came up with an alternate model. The, the ones that pop into my mind are IBM and Susan Roebuck, which used to be a gigantic company. And they had very sophisticated human resources you know, type of programs. Um, first of all, they paid pretty well. They often offered stock options, you know, I mean – they did take seriously the idea that, you know, their workers should be happy at these jobs. Um, so, you know, the workers were getting something real from it. Uh, but in, in, in offering these perks and, 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 and building company 
identification, it was often actually actively seen as a way to keep out unions or weaken unions. You know, here's a, here's a funny little anecdote, you know, um, the way Ronald Reagan got into uh, politics when Ronald Reagan was this actor who was kind of, he wasn't that big a deal and his career was kind of going on down. GE management in the 1930s had been quite liberal in the 40s and they had learned to kind of live with their union. There was a big strike in 1946, which basically the company lost and they really hated this and they decided they were going to gear up to weaken and undermine their unions. And they spent decades very successfully doing this. And part of what they did is they hired Ronald Reagan to do two things. First, they, they created a TV show called GE Theater. It was like uh, each uh, week was like a one-hour little mini-drama, and Ronald Reagan introduced the show. But then he'd go around to all these towns where GE had factories, and in the factories or sometimes in the town, like, you know, the Chamber of Commerce or this or that, he'd give these kind of, uh, you know, kind of free market, free enterprise speeches, which would be ghostwritten by GE, you know. Uh, and it was a long-term investment in transforming uh, – you know, I, I, I left that one piece of the fact. One of the reasons why GE lost in 1946 – is and then all these company towns, the residents sided with the union, you know, and 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 GE wants to win over, you know, the community as well as their own workers, and they use and 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 so then Ronald Reagan becomes this kind of you know uh, dinner circuit speaker in the sort of free enterprise right, you know, and his kind of handlers, you know, kind of out in California, he, he, he develops all these like kind of local business types. Who, who really see his his skill at this, and and they, that's he becomes governor and then president. So you know, so there's a long history by companies, you know, that seem like super cool and super hip and like they just invented everything yesterday, but actually, you know, there's, there's really quite a history of this. I, I was going to ask. Reagan was the director or CEO of the Screen Actors Guild, right? Was he that was absolutely. Life is complicated, you know. Uh, yeah. he, he, he he never shied away from that, and you know, used to say when after he became president, he say, "You know, I'm the only president of the United States who ever was the head of a union," you know. And um, he's, you know, Reagan starts as a uh, New Deal liberal, even you know, slightly on the left. In here, when all these guys are on the left, I mean, like Frank Snatch is like seriously on the left, and you know. Uh, and then, you know, kind of in the late 30s, he begins drifting. And, and it's the kind of the Cold War anti-communism that kind of pushes. And there's a big fight in the Screenwriters Guild, which uh, they're a pretty left-wing union. And, and Reagan is associated with the kind of anti-communist wing of the Screen Actors Guild. So, so while he's still active in the union, he begins moving into the right. His acting career is kind of like going nowhere. And then GE spots him. And they, uh, they think, this guy's, you know, good at this. You know? <laughs> Unlike being in the movies, he was actually very good at these, these dinner speeches. And, uh, yeah, so it's interesting. Cool. So, but, you know, I, I think, you know, I just want to say about, like, just one final thought about what you're saying. 
I think, you know, I've noticed that among some groups of tech workers who've organized, they've been really conscious to say, you know, we're proud of what our country, a company does. You know, we're, we think our company's done some very, very cool things. And, and we even think a lot of its principles are really good. But, you know, I mean, we need a way to say you've got to be more environmentally responsible or you have to deal with this national problem of uh, white supremacy or you have to. And I think that's a smart way of going about it, you know, instead of saying, oh, you know, you're, you're evil incarnate, you know, and, and, and nothing you've ever done is any good, you know, because these people wouldn't be working in these places on the tech level if they thought that, you know. Yeah. So I, I uh, you know, I we know I know that we told you it would be an hour and a half. So I want to be conscious of your time. But Maggie, do you have any other question? I think one more question might be okay if you're willing to. Jeff. Sure, one more question sounds fine. Okay. Yes. Um, I think one thing that both of us are very interested in, and we want to spend a lot of time or a good section on um, in our audio series, is on automation and yes. and like globalization and how uh, these are things that have. Um, like popped up in like the last century like um there are questions about like robots and artificial intelligence and stuff and we were wondering what um might these effects have on the negotiating power of workers um is this like a new fear and um how has it how has this like changed over time with the emergence of these type of technologies this is not a new issue uh, it's an issue that has been present for over a century, you know, and it has um, it has uh, been dealt with in different ways at different moments by different unions. And I think, you know, there's, you know, to leave it on the broadest level, you know, there's often a kind of uh, two-faced uh a sense of, of automation as a two-phased phenomenon. You know, on one hand, you know, uh, it represents the conquering of the natural world in a way that, you know, reduces need human labor, sometimes makes you able to do things you just simply couldn't even do without it. And, you know, that is a good thing. And a lot of workers, particularly in the skilled ranks, are technically interested and they admire the ingenuity associated with technical advances, but always lurking there is what does that mean for my job, my particular situation? You know, will I lose my job? Will I be stripped of discretion? Will I be reduced to an adjunct of the machine? You know, and that, and so that's the tension. And I think different unions, different moments have dealt with it different ways. I mean, some unions have been Pretty stand pat, you know. I mean, for years, the painters' unions opposed any use of spray painting. You know, they said you had to put paint on brush. That was in the union contract, right, you know, because they felt it, it threatened their jobs, you know. Um, there have been other unions that have, have, have taken it, uh, you know, uh, a view that, you know, we need to have power to either veto or negotiate about the introduction of any new technology or procedure which is going to impact the working conditions of our members. You know, uh, you can't unilaterally introduce that. And that's another position. This was heavily fought out 
in industries like the auto industry and the steel industry, particularly after World War II, when a lot of the new technological advances like feedback loops, you know, are beginning to be introduced into machinery, you know. I mean, you could go back to, I mean, way earlier than this, you go back to the early textile machinery in the 1780s, you know, but, you know, thinking more recently, there was a big wave of concern after World War II about this. Um, there's a Kurt Vonnegut novel about this player piano, which was about G's introduction of uh, uh, what becomes like, it's like computer-controlled machine tools, basically. Um, and then there are unions that say, look, you know, okay, we'll go along with this, but we want to split the bounty. We want the great gains that result. So, for example, in New York in the 1960s, the construction electrical workers, the guys who install electrical stuff for um, high-rise buildings, big commercial buildings, they, they were very open to new automation, but they wanted a reduced work week. And they, for a while, got their work week down to, I think, 30 hours a week. You know, they were saying, okay, great. You know, let's, you know, if we don't need as much human labor, um, just keep paying us the same amount of money for, for working a few hours. So, you know, there are every variation that you can think of. But I think it, it, it's very much been present. Um, and I think today there's obviously – and, you know, there were, there were episodic what were called automation scares. There was a big one in the late 50s and early 60s that thought that, that you know, there was going to be massive unemployment because of uh, automation, which didn't happen. Now, why it didn't happen is a whole other question, you know, but it, 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 it ends up not happening. So, you know, um, today, of course, you see a modern version of this. I've lost you. I can't Sorry. Um, yeah, yeah. Is it, 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 it services jobs coming in in place, right? Like kind of for that specific spell of like fear of automation, like what got rid of fear was like new services. Uh, well, no, I think it was actually the Vietnam War um, because the economy was so okay. stimulated by the Vietnam War, including a lot of these blue collar industries that uh, were the cutting edge for automation, you know, new kinds of machine tools, new transfer systems, uh, feedback, you know, self-controlling machinery that there were, you know, the unemployment rate was going down instead of going up because the whole economy was so overheated. Um, uh, so uh, the issue then reemerges, of course, you know, over and over again. Today you see it, uh, you know, in the whole discussion of guaranteed annual uh, uh, payments, you know, uh, uh, universal payments, which are divorced from, you know, like Andrew Yang, you know, right? You know, and all these tech companies like this idea, right? You know, these payments that are not linked to employment, right? You know, because the idea is going to be fewer and fewer and fewer jobs, right? You know, so how do we keep people going? Well, we just have the state or the society give everybody a kind of bare minimum uh, package of money and, and, and benefits, you know, instead of trying to provide a job for everybody. So, you know, there's a, a new version of this, in response to the sense that, you know, uh, jobs are being automated out of existence. You know, I mean, I'm a little skeptical myself about the actual pace of automation, but I could be wrong, you know, because it looks really differently if you look at it globally versus in any one country. So, I mean, like there's a massive decline in manufacturing in the United States 
and you could say, oh, yeah, it's like automation and so forth. But if you look at like globally, like, you know, manufacturing employment in the last 20 years has been pretty much at a historic peak. You know, uh, it's just we've shifted these jobs over to other places. And a lot of things that you could automate aren't being automated because it's just cheaper to hire people and pay them unbelievably crappy wages. Why automate it? You know, I mean, automation is not a social vision. It's just a, well, for some people it is. But for most companies, it's just a strategy to make more money. <laughs> if you make more money without automation, paying people low wages, do that. So I'm, I'm not so convinced that, you know, this mass unemployment is of automation is about to happen. But I can see why people are scared of it. And some industries, obviously, it is happening. And whole occupations have disappeared. My, you know, uh, my, my father, when he was a young man, was a linotype operator. He set type for newspapers on these ancient machines that made lead type that you put into printing presses. And, you know, in the night, by, the night, by the end of the 1970s, that job, no one even know what you're talking about, you know, when you mentioned that job. 